are listening to Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio vs. the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 11, Ohio versus Terror. Ohio v. The World's now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Uh, they've been working with us all season. Thanks so much to Connor and Gerardo and Sarah and all our friends over at Evergreen for all their help this year. You can go to evergreenpodcast.com for our show and a bunch of other great history shows they have. Today we're going to be talking about what our guest Charles Lane from the Washington Post called America's first war on terror against the Ku Klux Klan, KKK, during the era of Reconstruction. As we've seen in recent years, KKK and white supremacy has made a bit of a comeback. Remember when I was a kid in the 90s, there was this resurgence of the KKK. And in the 60s, and certainly in the 1920s, it's not a situation where there's fine people on both sides that should be uniting force, that everyone condemns the actions of the Ku Klux Klan. When they were first born in the years of Reconstruction, after the Civil War, they ran amok in the South. Insidious, they were in all parts of government, law enforcement, and private life, making raids on people's houses, African Americans, their supporters, Republicans, really anyone they could get their hands on. Today we'll be talking about the first war against the KKK, how through the government, black resistance, and the involvement of some Ohioans, was able to beat back the Klan in the early 1870s. And yes, like I said, it was not permanent. You would see a huge rise in the Klan following World War I in the 1920s, and that included in the North. But what we'll look at today is how a concerted effort by government and by the people was able to diminish the role and the influence of white nationalism. We look at incidents in recent years. We've seen a rise in white supremacy again. Incidents like Charlottesville should give us all pause that people like this still exist in our country. And I think there is something to be said that the media pumps up the numbers of people that are supporting this. And certainly, you know, it feeds ratings and it feeds fear, but it is real and it must be confronted by all of us. And we'll talk about the first time Americans face this terror and how they beat it back. Now, as we said, there's some great Ohio connections in this first fight against the KKK. We'll look at the second leader of the Secret Service and his role in the war against the KKK. And of course, President Ulysses S. Grant, himself an Ohioan. You can go back and listen to our Grant episode from last year with the great Ron C. White a couple other really good guests, and we'll talk about how Ulysses S. Grant, the hero of Appomattox, he led a united federal effort. That's what it took. The states were not able to do this. They didn't have the will, the capability, or the want to. It took a federal effort to beat back the KKK during Reconstruction. As we always do on the show, we'll use history to try and help us with the problems of today. As we see an emboldened white supremacy movement in this country, we'll look at the lessons of the past about how we beat it before. We've got some great guests, like we said, Charles Lane from the Washington Post will join us. Our great friends Stephen and Eric from one of the best history podcasts out there, 1865, will talk about their second season as they delved into this area of Reconstruction and Ulysses S. Grant and the war against the KKK. It's episode 11, Ohio versus Terror. earlier today we're going to be talking about reconstruction the period after the civil war 
where everything was up for grabs from 1865 until it ends in 1877. It's an era that has been the victim of bad history and a poor understanding in our history books for a number of reasons. But it's also a period of time that I'm really fascinated with, always have been. I've always loved that area from the post-Civil War all the way to, to World War I. It's kind of my wheelhouse. And it's the same for our guest today, Charles Lane. Chuck is an editorial board member and a columnist for the Washington Post and the author of the excellent 2019 book, Freedom's Detective, Secret Service, the Ku Klux Klan, and the man who masterminded America's first war on terror. We asked Chuck why he's like us and so fascinated by the important period of Reconstruction. Reconstruction is a real turning point in American history where the whole future of the country was up for grabs after the Civil War and a lot of possibilities were open. And it's a real missed opportunity in our history was for many years either kind of covered up or forgotten or distorted. And so there's a real task of historical investigation that's still uh, very challenging and, and, and to me very stimulating. And I do believe that a lot of the institutions that today are so important to everything in our contemporary public life, the 15th Amendment, which established voting rights, the Justice Department, basic infrastructure of the national government, all of that was formed, at least in uh, an embryonic way, in this 12-year period after the Civil War until 1877, amid very dramatic conflict with a lot of towering personalities of our history all involved. So it's a fascinating time. Our other guests today rejoining the show are Eric Archilla and Stephen Walters, the creators of the great Wondery podcast, 1865. It's one of the most popular history podcasts up for podcasts of the year all over the place. If you haven't listened to it, there's a link in the show notes. Get started with season one, which really focuses on the crazy days following the assassination of Abraham Lincoln with John Wilkes Booth and Edwin Stanton in Ohio and, and President Andrew Johnson. And some of those characters make a return in 2021's second season of 1865, where they focus on Ulysses S. Grant, Reconstruction, and the war against the KKK. There's a number of Ohioans that are featured in that show. We'll talk about some of them today. But we talk with Stephen and Eric about why they decided to focus on this era in their second season. Millions of listeners, why was Reconstruction and Ulysses S. Grant the story they chose to focus on? We've, we had thought about several ideas for where season two could go. Uh, if we wanted to jump to a completely new time period, we still wanted to stick with the themes that we had established in, in season one. But I think that we left a lot of things unresolved as far as America goes. Um, obviously, um, the impeachment failed and and we wanted to kind of carry the story from there and, and take it to how Reconstruction failed and what led to the South getting their power back. I think the reason that the Reconstruction era is so important uh, to tell stories about it is because I think it's so integral to the moment that we're in politically, culturally, and socially right now. Besides the original sin of slavery itself, the Reconstruction era is the most significant inflection points that explain some of the, the strife that we have in our, our culture today. One thing I learned from studying this episode was just how many members of Congress in the 1870s during Reconstruction were black. A total of 16 African Americans served in the Congress as senators and as congressmen during those years. We talked with our guest Eric Archilla from the 1865 podcast. We got a link to that show in our show notes. But we asked him about those first black congressmen. 
Yeah, well, it's it was a big deal then, uh, something that Americans don't really know a lot about now. I think it's because it epitomizes the failures of Reconstruction. We kind of ignore this period of history and, and that we did have so many Blacks in Congress. I think at one point there were up to eight at the same time in, in the House and Senate and a total of about 20 that served during this time. Once the 15th Amendment was ratified in 1870, it just really opened the doors for Black Americans in the South to not only vote, but also to run for Congress. So we we had our very first African Americans in Congress. Uh, actually, the first one was Senator Hiram Rebels of Mississippi uh, won a special election and was able to, to finish out the term of a congressman from 1870 to March of 1871. Uh, and they referred to him as the 15th Amendment in flesh and blood. If you can imagine the, the, the sight of seeing that, that first Black man coming down the, to the Senate um, to be sworn in, that's, that's pretty remarkable um, coming out of the, the Civil War that quickly. We have this massive influx of new Black congressmen and um, two senators and then after this period is over, we won't see any again until 1929. And that's in the North. Um, that's a Northern um, Black congressman. We won't see congressmen in the South again until 1969. There won't be another Southern Black congressman from 1901 to 1969. 70 years. There won't be more than one for almost 80-some years. One of those pioneering Black politicians was Joseph Rainey from South Carolina. He's the first Black congressman. A man who just years earlier had been a slave in the Confederate South. And he's a focus, a main character in season two of 1865. We talk with Eric Archilla about Joseph Rainey and his importance in American politics during Reconstruction. Yes, all of them from the South. Um, and we chose to focus on Joseph Rainey of South Carolina. Um, a vacancy, just like with Hiram Rebels, a vacancy opened up in South Carolina. The Republican Benjamin F. Whitmore was caught in some corruption and... Rainey was selected to fill his seat and also to run for the next term. So he actually had to win two elections at once, one in October and one in November of 1870. And he won both and was seated. We chose Rainey for our story because he really follows. He was not only the first black man elected to the House of Representatives, but he also carries through um, four elections and he ends up losing his seat after the Compromise of 1877. So he's there during this entire period um, and is symbolic of both the rise of Black men in Congress and also the fall of Black men in Congress. Yeah, um, and he's so very he's, active too. And very active, uh, both in the, in the Civil Rights Bill of 1874. He is also in the state of South Carolina, which is the hotbed of what we're talking about with the violence in the, in the KKK. The Ku Klux Klan rose out of Pulaski, Tennessee in 1866, which started as just a social club. They were just singing songs, I'm sure drinking whiskey. A group of Confederate soldiers in Pulaski created this new club. It was mysterious and had, you know, the name alone was very odd. It became the KKK, and it spread to other places. One of those places it spread was South Carolina and across states all over the South, and even in the North. By 1868, the Ku Klux Klan had become militant. They had been riding at night. They didn't necessarily wear the, the white hoods that we, we know today, but they did wear disguises. And they would arrive in the middle of the night at a home of an agitator, at the home of an African-American trying to assert their rights or their property rights or their voting rights. They would attack them. They didn't necessarily hang everyone. There were a lot of whippings and beatings of men, women, and children. We talked with Eric Archilla about what was it that sparked this, other than just old-timey racism, but also 
the sudden influx of African-American rights, of African-American suffrage, and of course those black politicians that we talked about, over 600 would serve in state legislatures across the country. And this enraged the former Confederates. Organized violence, the KKK started in Tennessee, and then it kind of bled into South Carolina. South Carolina is where it really took foothold, um, and the KKK was was ubiquitous, as you said. It's, it was everywhere. If you can imagine the, the situation in South Carolina, there were four congressmen who were elected at that time. Three of them were black. And so in a state that had just rebelled against the United States, now to have control of that state under three black men and a white Republican, they were angry and they they thought that their land was being stolen from them and they were angry about carpetbaggers coming from the north. These groups started like the KKK to to try to stop that takeover politically of their state. Um, and during the election of 1868, violence was widespread. They were trying to stop blacks from voting at the polls. Because of that, in the election of 1870, the midterm election, they tried to protect the polls. And Captain Jim Williams, the head of the Union League militia, was brought in to, to protect the black polls and make sure that there was nothing, uh, no shenanigans to stop people from voting. One of the Ohioans we'll focus on today is the subject of Charles' book, Freedom's Detective. He was that detective, Hiram C. Whitley. Grew up in Kirtland, Ohio, in Lake County. Born in the 1830s, moved at age six to Ohio, just east of Cleveland. And he went to the Western Reserve Teachers Seminary, which is a, a Mormon school. Kirtland was a, a Mormon center in those early years before they were pushed out west. Hiram C. Whitley would become the second director of the Secret Service. But we talk with our guest, Chuck Lane, about his early years in Ohio. The Whitley family migrated to Kirtland, Ohio, in the 1840s. They came from Maine. This was, as you probably know, a very typical migratory pattern at that time in the United States, from the New England states to the Western Reserve, as it was known, in Ohio. And it was a frontier. We think of Wyoming, maybe in Montana as the old frontier, but really Ohio was. And the it was the cattle drive that went through Ohio in those days that eventually was Hiram C. Whitley's ticket out of Kirtland. Uh, he joined a cattle drive as a 17-year-old or so and uh, went back east to the market north of Philadelphia. And that was the beginning of a wandering and peripatetic lifestyle that took him all over the United States in his life, and I think probably contributed to his later career as a detective and spy and law enforcement official, because perhaps uh, he had to learn to adapt to so many difficult circumstances and to so many of the different regional cultures that he came into contact with in those years. Whitley, the protagonist in Chuck Lane's 2019 book, Freedom's Detective, although he would end up leading this fight against the KKK as the director of the Secret Service, Whitley was not an abolitionist. He was not a crusader for black rights. We discuss him with Chuck as this anti-hero, kind of like Tony Soprano, where you're the star of the, of the book or the movie, but not necessarily everyone's rooting for you. We talk with Charles about that complicated story and his complicated protagonist, Hiram C. Whitley from Kirtland, Ohio. Hiram C. Whitley was indeed very complicated morally uh, throughout his life. 
as a detective and spy, he lived by deception and sometimes cruelty, but often put those things to the service of good causes. Of course, in Kansas in the 1850s, when that territory was being torn apart by slavery, Whitley put his deceptive talents to a very evil cause when he helped slave catchers, as they were known, kidnap a group of escaping African-Americans who were trying to leave Kansas for the North, for Iowa to be specific. And he betrayed them for money to the slave catchers from Missouri. He was almost lynched for that back in the free section of Kansas when they discovered what he had done. And running away from that, he joined the Union. <laughs> and so you can see he was on both sides, if you like, of the great conflict of the 19th century. But after that incident in Kansas, he found his way to New Orleans, and he begins working for the Union in the cities under the direction of Benjamin Butler, a general, later senator from Massachusetts, who was an abolitionist, who was a crusader. And he was very tough on the citizens of New Orleans during the war. They hated him, and he hated them. But Whitley's reputation grew. He then began busting whiskey stills down in the South, and in 1868, he was put in charge of a very important case, the murder of George Ashburn, a prominent Republican in Columbus, Georgia, who was killed by this new shadowy organization known as the KKK. Ashburn had been outspoken about black rights and black suffrage, and he was murdered in his home. And there were witnesses, and a lot of people saw it, and a lot of people were there. No one was talking. The people who were talking were then threatened out of being witnesses. And Hiram C. Whitley comes to this case that's all over the newspapers. And it's this really this case where he began to make his name as the man who would fight the KKK. In March of 1868, the Ku Klux Klan, which was uh, basically a clandestine terrorist group reconstructed out of Confederate army units, made its first attack, its first big assassination. And it was the victim was white. It was a Republican, radical Republican who supported equal rights for African-Americans in Georgia called George Ashburn. This case, this murder caused a sensation all over the country. And the federal government, the military, uh, determined, which was in that time in charge of Georgia, it had to be investigated and the perpetrators brought to justice. But there was no, no FBI, no NCIS, no federal investigative resources. So at the suggestion of General Grant, they tapped Hiram C. Whitley, who at the time was working as a an agent for the Revenue Service breaking up illegal whiskey stills. And he came down to Columbus, Georgia, and took charge of the case. One thing I love about Charles Lane's book, Freedom's Detective, there's a link in the show notes, I really, really encourage you to go buy it, is that he finds this character, Hiram C. Whitley, who's really a man who's been lost to history. He used some pretty unorthodox tactics. I saw in one article saying he paved the road to Gitmo, as we called it during the Iraq War, aggressive interrogations. He was at the forefront of that. There was no Geneva Convention. He would separate people, make them think they were going to die. He would tell them lies and things to get them to talk. Sleep deprivation, all kinds of tactics that today we would police would never be allowed to use. The case would be thrown out. And the press, especially the Southern press, gave Whitley a very hard time about his methods. But we talk with our guest Chuck Lane about how there were also a lot of inventive detective methods that he used. And this investigation, where he arrests 12 KKK members with the murder of George Ashburn in Columbus, Georgia, where he cut his teeth and really became a prominent figure and would later become the second director 
of the Secret Service. He used the methods he had learned reading about the French secret police of that time to, in effect, set the members of the conspiracy one against another, arresting the low-ranking members and coercing them, to put it gently, into uh, informing on the higher-ranking ones. And these were methods that were they were considered French. Um, they were not considered worthy of the Anglo-American world, but Whitley was the supreme pragmatist and he felt, and he said many times, it doesn't matter what the ethics are. If you have the, you know, a right goal, a legal goal, you can do whatever it takes to pursue it. And that in a way is what he did in the Ashburn case. Whitley's interrogation tactics did shine a light on the assassination of George Ashburn, who was responsible. But part of the politics in, in the South and Georgia in 1868, they were refusing to pass the 14th Amendment. One of the reasons was that they thought was this unfair trial in Columbus, Georgia, being headed up by Hiram C. Whitley. But although they were all arrested, interrogated, and although he knew exactly what happened, he was never able to prosecute that case fully. In exchange for the 14th Amendment being passed, General Meade stopped that prosecution and allowed them to make bail. But still, Hiram C. Whitley had made his name. We talked with Chuck Lane about those days in Columbus. The thing that Whitley understood was that you had to penetrate the organization and get its own members talking and testifying against one another. But he also understood that because the Ku Klux Klan was so powerful and prevalent in Georgia, even then you would have to isolate your witnesses or your suspects physically so that the, they would be under the complete control of the government. Their stories were being extracted. And he came up with the idea of moving, arresting and moving witnesses to a fort that the army had on an island off of Georgia called Fort Pulaski, and essentially locking them up in cells and sweating them until they started talking. Or, as he sometimes did, sitting outside the cell and eavesdropping on them after one of his planted informants was introduced to the cell. And if, if this reminds you a little bit of Guantanamo, it probably should, because this idea that you have to physically separate the sources of information and place them under total government control while you try to get their stories is a very modern tactic of intelligence and investigation. And Whitley had an instinct for that. This kind of thing had really not been done on behalf of a civilian federal law enforcement agency before. And he sold his plan to the generals and they went forward and eventually he did crack this conspiracy. Despite being unsuccessful in the end in the Ashburn case, Whitley was put on the short list to be the new Secret Service Director under the new president in 1869, Ulysses S. Grant from Ohio. They didn't know each other before, but the Secret Service was a much different organization than it is now. They were not tasked with protecting the president. They really worked a lot on counterfeiting. Paper money, which had been invented in the United States during the Civil War, quite easily counterfeited. And it was the Secret Service's job and Hiram C. Whitley at the head of that to crack those counterfeiters. Some really interesting cases are detailed in Chuck Lane's book. But we talked to him about the early Secret Service and their second director from Kirtland, Ohio, Hiram C. Whitley. May of 1869, Hiram C. Whitley was appointed as director of what was then called the Secret Service Division of the Department of the Treasury. And it was a federal detective force. 
that had been kind of improvised to deal with counterfeiting of the federal currency and securities, which themselves were brand new. There had never been federal paper money in the United States really before the Civil War. And so that was a very uh, important task for establishing federal power over the financial system was to prevent counterfeiting of these securities. And Whitley was appointed to that job on the basis of his performance in the Ashburn case that we just discussed and also his successes in rounding up illegal whiskey distillers, but also because of his political connections to prominent New England Republicans, such as Benjamin Butler, who was a powerful member of Congress. And uh, so his initial task when he came on board at the Secret Secret Service was to set up an anti-counterfeiting detective force. more overlooked facets in the war against the KKK in our history books is the role of black resistance. Whether it's going to vote, whether it's standing up to the KKK, whether it's staying in your home when they threaten to kill you, when they threaten to beat you. Those stories can be difficult to uncover. The research we talked with Eric and Steve just about their research for the second season of the 1865 podcast and some of the places they had to go was the Freedmen Bureau's records the KKK hearings in Congress and even the KKK trials in places like South Carolina. But black resistance was key to winning this war. One of those important figures in black resistance to the KKK in the South was Captain Jim Williams. Williams, who had served in the Union Army, and was the head of a militia in York County, South Carolina. His story is very prominent and it's detailed in, in Season 2 of 1865. We talk with Eric about Captain Jim Williams and the Union League militia as they were touring these men around the country, uh, around the South, um, to protect Poles, the Southern men did not like seeing the troops of Black men uh, protecting the Poles and rubbing their faces in the situation changing. Angered at seeing Black men step up and, and declare equality and, and to see them rising in station because they wanted to keep them as second-class citizens. <laughs> when Jim Williams started marching the Union League militia around York County, and the KKK then acted out. Um, they, they sent a message out to the community to say, resolved that in all cases of incendiarism, uh, because they accused Jim Williams' men of inciting the violence, 10 of the leading colored people and two white sympathizers shall be executed in that vicinity, that if any army bands of colored people are found herein picketing the roads, the officers of the company to which the pickets belong shall be executed, that all persons reporting as using incendiary language shall be tried by the high court of this order and be punished at their discretion by order of the KKK. And they littered that that notice around the community to, again, scare people. Jim Williams, who stood up in 1870 to the KKK in his home county of York, South Carolina, but he would ultimately be a victim of their violence. He was lynched and he was killed by the KKK in March of 1870. And his death would have consequences back in Washington and on this war on terror during the Reconstruction era. We talked with Eric Archilla about the murder of Captain Jim Williams. And so because of that, they horrifically lynched Captain Jim Williams. 
Yeah, it's just a it's a, a heartbreaking, terrible story. And from that, from all the violence that happened in South Carolina, specifically in York County, they had the KKK trials, and then that led to a congressional investigation of the KKK. Dr. Rufus Bratton was the town doctor in York County. He's a character. He's a villain in season two of 1865. And his story and the fallout of his being accused for murder, running away to Canada, which is a story for a whole nother day. But in the course of doing their season two, Steve and Eric realized that Bratton's clan activities were the basis of the movie Birth of a Nation, the 1915 blockbuster film that essentially praised the role of the clan in the Old South. Bratton's likely the person who hung Jim Williams. He knew Williams well. Captain Jim Williams was a slave for Bratton's brother. The Williams family knew him. They trusted him, which goes to show just how diabolical and entrenched the clan was in the South by 1870. So Jim Williams, after his his horrible lynching, um, he was his body was brought to J. Rufus Bratton, who was the town doctor, and he is the one who gave the autopsy report. And presumably, they did not think he was a part of it at all at the time. And oh, be- well, um, and the reason they didn't think he was a part of it is because Bratton was going to the you know union officers who were investigating the crime and offering up his services and you know playing the part of an ally essentially. When in fact he was he was the executioner himself. Birth of a Nation was actually largely based on the story of the life of J. Rufus Bratton. Um, and, and so this is a film that if, if you've not seen it or heard of it, um, it, it is basically furthering the lost cause narrative. It became like the, the, the poster film of this romanticized South and the, the lost cause narrative. And they actually screened it in the white house, President Woodrow Wilson, furthering that narrative that it was all about state's rights and, and the South had these ideals they were fighting for. The trusted Dr. J. Rufus Bratton likely responsible for the death of Jim Williams. It helps to show just how ubiquitous and just how entrenched the KKK was in the South. They wore disguises, but they'd recognize voices. African-Americans would recognize these body types. Sometimes these masks would fall off when you're in the midst of lynching someone or whipping a woman in her front yard. We talked with Stephen Walters just how immersed in Southern culture was the Ku Klux Klan. There's a line that I think Dr. Ray Christian's character, Andy, says where he says they're, you know, they're hiding in plain sight. And, you know, I think that really sort of sums it up for me. They were ubiquitous. I mean, they were everywhere. I mean, if if Nathan Bedford Forrest, you know, is is to be to be believed in his comments to the press, there were hundreds of thousands of members spread out across the South. And they had infiltrated governments and institutions at local levels, even as early on as 1868. I think insidious is is the right word for it. I mean, these were not, you know, backwater, angry, you know, hillbillies that hated black people. You know, these were these were civilized, educated doctors, lawyers, town government officials, local state officials, federal officials. And then as we know, as we get later into the 1870s, these are congressmen, these are senators, you know, these are people running for president. I mean, it, this this isn't some, you know, minor league white supremacist organization. I mean, this is this is what we know now to be the KKK in its nascent form, but still uh, very pervasive in society, very much a threat uh, to the cause that so many uh, fought and died for in the Civil War, and such a, I mean, such a sort of Damocles hanging over the neck of the of the freedmen community.
One of the great things Eric and Steve do on the, on their show 1865 is they, these characters they develop and talking about the politics of the time, and especially in season two, the politics of Reconstruction. I know Eric reached out to me when they were researching the season and asking about Senator Alan Thurman from Ohio. I didn't know enough to, to really help them, but I knew he was a leader of this Democratic, this apologist, racist Democratic Party of the 1870s, and Alan Thurman becomes a central character in season two in the politics of the Democratic Party, a rising Democratic Party in Congress and in the Senate. Thurman, who was elected in 1868 to the Senate, would become a central figure in trying to undo Grant's efforts during Reconstruction and become a leader of the Democratic Party in the Senate. We talk with Eric Archilla about Ohio Senator Alan Thurman. Yeah, Thurman, uh, com- coming from Ohio, a northern Democrat, it's kind of a new wave of Democrats. Democratic Party, their their primary platform since like the 1830s was slavery. Everything revolved around um, legislation that involved slavery. And now that slavery is off the table, it's like, what is their party about? Um, what is what is the, the primary focus of what they're trying to achieve and protect? Um, and so you have, have Senator Thurman coming in, pushing basically states' rights and and stopping the federal government from intervening in what's happening in the states. They called him the the noble Roman or old bandana, he was popularly called. And he would wave his red bandana in the air. He, the quote I found says, he would take, take a fresh pinch of snuff and dash into a debate, dealing rough blows and scattering the carefully prepared arguments of his adversaries. The rival of the Democrats at the time were the Radical Republicans. One of the leaders of the Radical Republicans during the Andrew Johnson administration following the war was an Ohio Senator Ben Wade. You can go listen to our episode, Ohio vs. Impeachment, I think from our second season, about Ben Wade, a man who came within one vote, becoming the 18th president of the United States when Johnson was impeached. But Alan Thurman's the one who replaced him. Couldn't have been much bigger difference in philosophies, and Reconstruction philosophies, certainly, than Thurman, the Democrat, and Ben Wade, the radical Republican uh, from Northeast Ohio. We talked with Eric Archilla about Alan Thurman and his replacing a, a figure like Ben Wade. Right? Yeah, so he, he followed up uh, Ben Wade. Ben Wade would have been the president had Andrew Johnson been removed. He would have been acting president. A lot of people voted against Johnson's, um, what's the term? <laughs> you're, you're the lawyer. Conviction. They, yeah, a lot of people voted to acquit Andrew Johnson of impeachment because they did not want Benjamin Wade to become the acting president because they viewed him as too radical. Yeah. And so, I mean, those two are kind of like total opposites, which kind of shows you what was maybe going on in Ohio at the time. Yeah. And all over the country, um, as we, we get into with our series, it's um, kind of a moral fatigue. Change is happening too fast for some. Even uh, President Garfield, for future President Garfield, um, said that the country wasn't ready in 1868 for the first um, black man in Congress. Thurman was a Northern Democrat. The Democratic Party was certainly in the minority during the Reconstruction years, but their power is growing. They fought tooth and nail against things like the 15th Amendment. They fought against even going and looking and doing investigations. Like we'll talk about the KKK hearings, saying that they were they did not exist. They were a myth. Eric Archilla from the podcast 1865 joins us to talk about Alan Thurman and his Democratic Party what they represented during the Reconstruction years. Thurman was a piece of work. <laughs> He's denying that the KKK exists. It's, it's a lot of whataboutism. He basically says that he knows of a, a Black man that was intending to vote Democrat that was beat up, and why is no one talking about that violence? 
um, even though the pervasive uh, violence against Black Republicans in the South was ubiquitous. Um, he was, you know, pointing out one or two cases of a Democratic Black man having violence against them. He called the, the KKK a myth, which is what they were doing at that time. The The Democrats in the KKK trials were saying that it was a myth, that it was all Republicans trying to drum up votes and demonize Democrats and that it did not exist and it was not true. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. The murder of Jim Williams by the KKK in 1870 in South Carolina sent shockwaves through Washington and the Grant administration. They had lost control of the situation down there. They're getting reports from their soldiers and their agents that things are spiraling out of control. KKK is running wild, and the terror that they had inspired in Southern citizens, black and even some white. The same month as Williams is killed, Grant understands that the states can no longer control this. It's an important part of this story. The idea that federal power, federal soldiers, were among the only people who could stop it. The only ones who could protect the freedmen. And just weeks after Jim Williams' murder, as detailed in season two of 1865, Grant sends a message to Congress demanding that they take action. And they allow him to take action and send troops into South Carolina. On the 23rd of March in 1871, General Grant addressed actually Congress. He said, a condition of affairs now exists in some states of the Union, rendering life and property insecure and the carrying of the mails and the collection of the revenue dangerous. The proof that such a condition of affairs exists in some localities is now before the Senate, referring to the KKK hearings. That the power to correct these evils is beyond the control of state authorities, I do not doubt. That the power of the executive of the United States acting within the limits of existing laws is sufficient for present emergencies is not clear. Therefore, I urgently recommend such legislation as in the judgment of Congress shall effectually secure life, liberty, and property, and the enforcement of laws in all parts of the United States. It may be expedient to provide that such law be passed in pursuance of this recommendation shall expire at the end of the next session of Congress. There is no other subject upon which I would recommend legislation during the present session. So this was his like primary focus. Uh, we have to deal with this problem. Congress needs to do something so that I can do something as president. One of the things Grant's message to Congress and the Republican-dominated Congress was able to do in the early 1870s were to pass things known as the Enforcement Acts, the third of which would become known as the KKK Act. We talk with Eric Archilla about those Enforcement Acts, how they strengthened federal power to quell the situation in the South, bring peace, and bring the KKK to justice. These were the types of things, these types of federal powers 
were the things that the Democrats, like Alan Thurman from Ohio, were fighting against. The fight for these acts and their enforcement, the subject of season two of 1865, it's just a political thriller of, of a podcast. Uh, and again, it's live acted. It's not like a show like mine with interviews, uh, incredible actors, award-winning actors uh, doing the voice work for all these characters we're talking about today. I've heard Stephen call it House of Cards for your ears, Netflix for your ears. Uh, but it is a political thriller, both season one and season two. And again, there's a link in the show notes. But we talk with Eric Archilla, the co-creator of 1865, about the Enforcement Acts of 1870. So the, the first Enforcement Act of 1870 just mainly focused on elections. It, it prohibited discrimination by state officials um, on the basis of race or color. Um, it was supposed to protect against election fraud, bribery, intimidation of voters, and conspiracies to prevent citizens from exercising their constitutional rights. And that was mainly, again, around elections. Then in 1871, they passed the Second Enforcement Act, which uh, basically revised that one. Um, and it permitted federal oversight um, if two people in a two citizens in a town of more than 25,000 said that there was discrimination, then the federal government would come in and oversee that election. And then the third one, which is the very important one for our series, which is the, the Ku Klux Klan Act, was in March of 71 as well. And that one, known as the Ku Klux Klan Act, gave the federal government the authority it needed to go in and, and stop the KKK. So it wasn't just about preventing election fraud. It was about protecting civil rights and equal protection. We show in season two, Grant was very, very hesitant to go in. Um, and it wasn't that Grant didn't believe that, you know, violence was happening and he didn't want to intervene, but he didn't feel like he had the legal right to do so. And the third enforcement act is what gave him that ability to go in, use the federal military to stop violence. get back to the story of Hiram Whitley, the director of the Secret Service. His talents are sent to the South, his agents. These men who were fighting against counterfeiting are now fighting against the KKK, and they're going undercover. Hiram C. Whitley's agents that he's directing are doing incredible things like joining cells of the KKK in the South. Such an exciting story that's laid out by our guest, Washington Post editor and columnist Charles Lane, his book Freedom's Detective, the story of Hiram C. Whitley. We talked to him about maintaining cover going undercover to expose and bring the KKK to justice. And Whitley and his men would round up hundreds of KKK members in an attempt to bring them all to justice. The Klan has expanded and started to push back against what we would call small D democratic governments that were being established in the South on the basis of equal suffrage for African-American men. And their methods were very violent and terroristic and the new Justice Department and Congress, uh, with the authorization of Congress, uh, was given the power to uh, arrest and prosecute under federal authority these Klan terrorists who basically the states were powerless to control. But they quickly realized they didn't have the ability to infiltrate and investigate them. So the only agency in the government was the Secret Service. And they asked Whitley and his agents to take on that job in addition to the fight against counterfeiting. 
And Whitley put together a team of approximately eight to 12 of his best agents and sent them into the Southern states. You mentioned North Carolina, South Carolina, and Alabama was where they were most active. And these men posed as Klansmen sometimes. They posed as uh, itinerant merchants. They posed as sometimes newspaper reporters and gained access to the internal workings of the Klan. There were even instances in which Secret Service agents had to go along on Klan attacks to maintain their cover. Uh, And the net effect was, particularly in North Carolina, the Secret Service agent, who was a man called Joseph Hester, was extremely courageous and daring and rolled up an operation of hundreds of Klansmen in North Carolina. Again, the principle being what Whitley had established, that if you can flip one low-ranking member against the higher-ranking people, you can roll up the whole operation i mean there's even a a time where like two guys are infiltrated and they don't even you know they don't even know that they're both undercover they kind of like discover each other right yes and there was one terrible instance where a secret service agent had to actually stand there and count the lashes that klansmen administered to one of their victims in alabama and the victim fortunately survived, but you could have had the situation which a federal agent actually stood by and to preserve his cover, let the Klan kill someone. Just like they discussed in season two of 1865, the situation in South Carolina certainly was spiraling out of control. Whitley's sending reports that are landing on President Grant's desk that they need more men, that they need more resources, they need more money, more agents to try and stem the tide of white nationalism in the South but certainly in the Magnolia State. We talk with Chuck Lane, our guest, about the situation in South Carolina. Federal government suspended the writ of habeas corpus in October of 1871 in state of nine counties in the state of South Carolina that were especially, uh, where the Klan was especially prevalent. And one of the big factors in that was the reports that were being transmitted through the Justice Department uh, from Secret Service agents in South Carolina. Um, they had gained access to Klan conversations and had, uh, you know, hidden in the bushes while Klan meetings were taking place outdoors and uh, presented a pretty substantial picture, along with intelligence that was being gathered by the U.S. Cavalry uh, Post in that region that made the overwhelming case that without a severe crackdown, this was going to continue to be out of hand. Reports from men like Hiram C. Whitley, his fellow agents, they're hitting the desk of President Grant. He's being pulled in three different directions, and whether it's full federal army intervention, a push for legislation, take a wait-and-see approach to the South, and then that any federal action, if you're talking about the Democrats, would be unconstitutional. We need to realize that the president doesn't become this all-powerful position, the imperial executive, until later in the 20th century. Executive orders, sending in troops of the National Guard to enforce federal law in the states, that was a completely foreign idea. Grant was slow to act, and and we see that in season two of the podcast, 1865, weighing his next move in the face of extreme violence and the murder of black Southerners and their Republican allies. Stephen Walters, the co-creator of that great show, 1865, he talked with us about his frustration in researching Grant at first. Grant's the president that's on the rise. 
He's cracking the top 20 in recent presidential rankings, mostly based on his being a civil rights president. We talk with Stephen about Grant's legacy and how the violence in South Carolina stirred him to action as he ordered in troops in the Palmetto State. Yeah, I have to say one of the things about researching this era and looking at Grant as as an anti-hero or a hero um, is is just how frustrating his inaction is at times when you look at what's happening down on the ground and how slow he is to move. But where I've ultimately landed with with Grant as a as a historical figure is that he, I mean, he is he is a hero. There, there's no doubt. He's he's the you know a hero of the Civil War narrative. There's there's no question. As far as his presidency and the legacy that's left behind there, um, I think it would be very easy to make the argument against it. And I think it's very easy to make the argument in favor of it. Um, but nothing's one dimensional. You know, it's what Grant accomplished in the context of his time is is amazing. It's a miracle what Grant did in his fight against the KKK. Um, and yet at the same time, it's 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 completely insufficient and it, can, it just does not get the job done. Um, I don't think that the blame for that lies entirely at his feet, um, but certainly I think it's irrefutable that that he did not solve the issue, right? I mean, here we are today. Um, how, how could one man do that? Um, but yeah, I, I think South Carolina did compel him. I think, you know, the, the lynching of Captain Williams, uh, in, in addition to scores of other atrocities happening in South Carolina, which was at that time sort of a hotbed of, of clan activity and of, of violence against the freedmen. It did, it did get him to move. Um, it got him to, to really push Congress to, to take action, to, you know, enforce the laws of reconstruction, to enforce the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments um, because the laws themselves mean nothing without enforcement. And we, we see this story played out throughout the course of American history, right? Amendments, laws at the federal level, laws at the state level, they don't mean anything if they're not properly enforced. And I think that the the events in South Carolina really lit a fire under the Grant administration and, and got them to lean in to this crisis and to do something about it, and they did. Grant's action, his federal intervention, sparks calls for impeachment in the South. His gross overreach in their opinion and had members of Congress, Democrats, calling him a tyrant. We're used to the feds coming into the states and cities investigating crimes, but the federal government was not nearly as powerful as it is now. They weren't really a part of your life. Many Democrats in the 1870s would argue the actions of Grant and this new Justice Department were blatantly unconstitutional. It's important whether we agree or not that we understand the arguments of the other side. Not the Klan side, because screw them, but the argument of men like Alan Thurman senator from Ohio, and the Democratic Party of the 1870s. This bold action to prosecute local crimes by the Klan was a shock to all advocates of states' rights. We talked with Stephen Walters because it was from our discussion with him that opened our eyes to the side of the national debate on federal intervention during Reconstruction. We talked with Stephen Walters because it was our discussion with him that really opened our eyes to the other side of the national debate on federal intervention during the Reconstruction era. Also, one, one other thing, Alex, just yeah. to add to that, but also, you know, you have to remember that the Justice Department did not exist before the Reconstruction <laughs> era. So you, you have this new federal power that's being brought to bear in the wake of the Civil War, which, which today we're very used to seeing presidents sign executive orders. And of course, we still have constitutionalists uh, in, in the Congress today, hemming and hawing every time that happens on both sides of the aisle. But back then, it was, it was a new idea. The idea that the federal government would prosecute a local crime 
was to, was to many Americans, particularly in the South, a signal that liberty had come to an end. Um, I mean, he is stepping into a cauldron and it, it, it gets ugly for him. Republicans in Congress opened a series of hearings on what was happening to the freedmen in the South. Democrats fought the creation of this joint select committee, saying it was a hoax, the conditions in the South were not as bad as people were saying, and anyways, it should be left to the state governments and law enforcement down there. Witnesses from North and South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, they were all heard. African Americans' testimony about the attacks they were suffering, the murder of their family members, the terror that was spreading shocked Northern and Western listeners. Of course, papers were very partisan at the time. The hearings were covered very differently in Republican and Democratic papers. But most importantly, this testimony was put on the record, the congressional record. For later generations to read, I've read a lot of this testimony. It's heartbreaking. But it's there for us to learn about, and it's there to provide firsthand accounts of the past. It's one of the best sources, and there's too few sources uh, from this era when it comes to the black experience in the South during Reconstruction. But Stephen and Eric talked to us about what would become known as the KKK hearings in Washington, how the controversy surrounding them at the time has echoes in today's divisive politics following the Capitol riot of January 6th. That was the whole purpose of the KKK hearings, was to show the nation the problem that was happening, to show what the federal agents were experiencing down in the South so that they could get legislation passed to deal with it. Yeah, they, 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 they needed evidence because there was large, widespread skepticism um, and they needed to, you know, Grant, because he did not want to be a tyrant, he did not want to do it with the executive pen or with circular orders alone. Um, he wanted congressional support because he wanted the people's support and the way to get it was to use those hearings so, you know, people could, you know, the issue could be elucidated to, to uh, the majority of Americans, which is still the same purpose that those hearings serve today to a large extent. Yeah. Of course, now, unlike, I mean, back then, the mechanism of spin was the newspaper alone, essentially, and, you know, word of mouth and things of that nature. But now we have, we have, you know, massive media conglomerates that spin their version of any narrative. Um, and then we have social media supercomputers in our pockets that amplify them in ways that certainly the founding fathers didn't anticipate, um, you know, which is why I think the concept of freedom of speech itself is, is being is being given this massive stress test right now in our in our culture. Yeah, I, I, I find a lot of echoes with the the incident of January 6th. Yeah. Uh, the conversations that happen online and people's perspectives and people denying certain things or accepting certain things uh, reminds me a lot of this argument that was held over the KKK. One of the positives that come out of this story, men like Hiram C. Whitley, the story of black resistance, the Republican-led Congress, and of course, President Ulysses S. Grant, his efforts for federal intervention produced results. The election of 1872, Grant running for re-election, and he is elected overwhelmingly, but he's also elected overwhelmingly thanks to black votes. Black men are able to vote. And sure, there was intimidation, there were attacks, there was violence, but the efforts of the federal government, the efforts of citizens to confront the KKK were working. We talked with our guest Charles Lane from the Washington Post about the election of 1872, how black voters were able to make it to the polls to vote for their president, Ulysses S. Grant. The 1872 election, in a way, was really the test of this crackdown on the Klan. And of course, President Grant was against the Klan morally, but it was in his political interest, too, to protect the right 
of people who were going to vote for him to vote. Yeah. And nevertheless, there was some backtracking in early 1872, where the federal government, the Grant administration thought perhaps this problem had been solved and that they could afford to cut back the spending on the Secret Service. And Whitley essentially said, well, you know, you can go ahead and do that, but I can't guarantee that everything will still be okay in the fall of 1872 if you do that. So he got, uh, basically got his budget preserved to keep those spies in place. Part of what he agreed to do in return for that was to provide a kind of uh, political intelligence about uh, who was voting for whom in the South directly to the Grant campaign, which I guess wasn't entirely kosher, but in the context of the time, I think it was, it was considered a matter of necessity. And in 1872, Grant was handily reelected. Uh, and I would say probably for that century, it was the cleanest and fairest election in the South that they ever had because Black people by and large could vote, at least in most of the Southern states. That's a real achievement. I think everything fell apart later in Reconstruction, as we know. But as of 1872, you could have said that, that the federal government had at least held the line. As we stare down the barrel of yet another rise of white nationalism in this country, emboldened over the last five, six years, the speed of change, all these things that have always brought it back, the societal change too quick for many people, has always been a fertile breeding ground for organizations like the KKK. One of the reasons we look at a story like Hiram C. Whitley, like President Grant and Reconstruction, is what it can tell us about today. One of those things, certainly, is federal intervention is necessary when it comes to extremism. Obviously, that can be a slippery slope, but when it comes to the KKK, there's no slippery slope. It must be done, and it must involve federal intervention to stop it. It's up to all of us to confront them as well, but without the government leading, as we've seen, it can be a problem and they can fester. As the numbers joining some of these organizations have risen over the years, we've also seen in the last year a rise when you look at things like the FBI and how seriously they're taking these ideas of domestic terrorism. We talked with Charles Lane to talk about the importance of Reconstruction, what it can show us how federal intervention can make a difference when it comes to squashing organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. The issue of race and political participation and equality has been with us for many, many decades. And obviously things are not as bad as they were in the 1870s, but the fundamental fault lines are still there and we're still wrestling with them. And I think the relevance of the Whitley story and the story of the Secret Service is that if you are talking about a domestic insurgency or domestic terrorist group or white supremacist extremism, as the Biden administration now is, talking about making that a real priority, you can go back to this period to see, in a way, the issue in embryo, the the federal structures and the dilemmas that those had to face are eerily similar. You, You still have the challenge. If you want to break up an extremist violent group of penetrating it, gaining information, and ultimately bringing people to justice in the courts. And of course, you have the dilemma of staying on the right side of the Constitution and the law while you're doing that. Hiram C. Whitley, as 
we went into was scrupled about no methods. He would have tortured people. He would have dragged them off into isolated jail cells. And we can't do that today. I hope we won't do that. But the difficult problem of controlling this kind of extremism that leads to violence within the framework of the Constitution, it's still there. Reconstruction ultimately failed. By the final years of the Grand Administration, the moral fatigue of the North, the split Republican Party, led to federal troops being reduced and withdrawn from urban centers in the South. They would ultimately leave entirely as part of the resolution to the controversial election of 1876 and what was known as the Compromise of 1877. That compromise, which many believe helped elect Ohio and Rutherford B. Hayes to president. We did an episode on Hayes, another underrated Ohio president. Go find that from last summer on our website, ohiovtheworldpodcast.com, or all our old episodes are available on our podcast with our podcast network partners, evergreenpodcast.com. You can go listen to any old episode there. And talking about why Reconstruction failed with Eric and, and Steve, we turn to the issue of how the states were readmitted to the Union. States had to write new constitutions with protections for the freedmen that would never be enforced. Uh, Republican governors were put in office, but but quickly were removed. And a Southern state could be reintegrated into the Union when 10%, that's it, 10% of its voters took an oath of allegiance to the United States. And even that was largely scrapped in the readmittance process. Steve made a comparison that normally to me is a conversation stopper. Whenever someone or something is being compared to Hitler or the Nazis, I usually just tune out. But when it comes to the readmittance of the Southern Confederate States and the readmittance of the Axis powers like Germany, in Japan to the world community following World War II, I think he makes a great point as to why Reconstruction failed in the United States in the 1870s. But, you know, think about this for a second. And, and I know that this is a provocative statement, and I'll, I'll add some qualifiers to it after I say it, but <laughs> can you imagine if the Nazis had been allowed to write the own rules of their subjugation? I mean, can you imagine if the Nazis had been immediately allow, allowed to come back into the government in seats of power, in the halls of power, and to write the laws about the new order uh, in, in Germany. Now, I know that that's provocative because I know that there's a lot of people that are gonna say, are you suggesting that the people who fought for the Confederacy are exactly like the Nazis? And I would say, no, of course, I'm not suggesting that they're exactly like the Nazis. The Nazis wanted global domination and they wanted extinction and mass genocide. Um, the Confederacy did not want global domination, but they did want human beings to live in perpetual subjugation. So which of those do I think is worse? I think obviously the Nazis are worse. But let's, 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 let's make, make no bones about it. The, the Confederacy, the rebellion against the United States of America was insidious. And it was, it was all about states' rights to own other human beings. And those folks, those folks, the, and I'm not talking about the average soldier who had geographical loyalty to his town, who perhaps didn't have much of a choice, you know, who didn't actually have a lot of power or agency or wealth. But I'm talking about the, 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 the power class, the, the, the class of people that had money, power, that controlled the levers. Those folks absolutely knew what they were doing and what they were fighting for and what this was all about. They were 
allowed, no questions asked, all is forgiven, allowed back into the halls of power. They did write the rules of their own subjugation and they did implement laws on the local county and state level to make the lives of freedmen, of black folks in America and of people of color in America, really any other group in America, to make their lives absolutely miserable, a living hell. We leave you today with our friends Stephen Walters and Eric Archilla from the award-winning podcast 1865. Go check out season two, which is about so much of what we discussed here today on our episode. There's a link in the show notes to the show. I'd start with season one, though, if you haven't heard the show, because season one's one of the best podcasts I've ever heard. So many of my friends told me to listen. It took me a while uh, to do it, but I'm really glad I did. It takes an episode or so getting used to. But what season two of the podcast 1865 helps to do is further our national conversation. These issues of racial strife and discrimination, they're born out of the failures of Reconstruction. But you have to also understand the role of terror by the KKK in the South, how it shaped the South for the next hundred years through the civil rights movement of the 60s and beyond. We can't have a true reconciliation as a country until we face the awful realities of the time. It's long-lasting effects. And until we can do that, can we really have a real conversation about a path forward? I get infuriated when I see social media posts where people say, we fought the Civil War over slavery and slavery was abolished. Um, Why are we still talking about racism? Racism and oppression did not end with slavery. And as we tell the story in 1865, we see how that victory that was won abolishing slavery and stopping the, the South from leaving, all of those gains that were made completely were obliterated over, over Reconstruction. And even, even when we passed things like um, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, they still found ways by the end of Reconstruction and ultimately up until the Compromise of 1877 that, that led the way to the Jim Crow era and, and segregation. And as we also talked about, Black representation that we see in Congress goes from a caucus of eight to we don't see another Black congressman from the South for 75 years. You know, without a common understanding of the whole story, the full picture, not not the whitewashed version or the politicized version, but understanding that it is complex and nuanced, without, without a common understanding of that, it's impossible for there to be healing. It's impossible for there to be true reconciliation. And the idea, as Eric mentioned, that suddenly because we won the Civil War that that was all over is just folly. And um, it's really sad that as a, as a culture that it's not in our history books because that part of the story is so important. It cannot be ignored because, it, because we cannot look at where we are today politically, culturally, and otherwise without taking into account the original sin of slavery and what happened at that moment when hundreds of thousands of Americans paid the ultimate price in blood with their lives to put this thing down when we had the opportunity to fix it and we failed. Those, those, the story of America cannot be told without that story. The first step in repairing and making right the sins of the past, the first step is in acknowledging the full truth of what happened. And it's all of its messiness, all of its vulgarity, and all of its complication. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading
Tip a canoe and tied it to From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation today is Freedom's Detective Secret Service, the Ku Klux Klan, and the man who masterminded America's first war on terror. It's by our guest Charles Lane from the Washington Post uh, from 2019. There's a link in the show notes. And again, such a good book, one I've read hardback and also on Audible, uh, an audio book that's also available. We talk with Charles about how he found this story, the story of Hiram C. Whitley lost to history for so many years and resurrected what it could show us about today. And what he found so interesting about this flawed hero, this anti-hero from Kirtland, Ohio, Hiram C. Whitley, the second director of the U.S. Secret Service. Well, this gives me an opportunity to plug my other book, yeah, <laughs> which was my first book about uh, uh, the Colfax Massacre. The book is called The Day Freedom Died. And it's about, to cut a long story short, a, a very uh, horrific incident of racial violence in Louisiana in 1873. And in the course of doing that book, I stumbled across the fact that the Secret Service had been sent to help investigate that crime. And that got me thinking about the chief of the Secret Service, Hiram C. Whitley, and he seemed to be kind of a colorful character. And, you know, the rest is history, so to speak. I, I, I just investigated him and I, I really was struck by the possibilities of a story about um, an antihero, as you, as you put it. I think it was challenging to uh, identify somebody this morally kind of ambiguous and get readers to buy into it. Um, but I have been very pleased that the response was kind of what I hoped for, that people weren't turned off by the idea that somebody this uh, dark would be the center of the book, but instead they were more intrigued. And I think in a way he embodies all the contradictions of political power and, um, you know, the dilemma of what means, what ends justify what means. And, and in that sense, it's really not even just an American story or reconstruction story. That's just the, that's just a story about history and politics that you could tell about many countries in many periods. And that'll do it for today. Thanks so much, Chuck Lane, for joining us. Get that book, Freedom's Detective. Uh, just scroll down and click the link in our show notes, and we'll post about it on our social media as well. You can follow us on Twitter at Ohio V the World and, and join us on Facebook. We're, we're posting on there a lot. A lot of our, our fans can post there and you can follow the, the story. We do a lot of video clips and, and episode clips and, and you'll see posts about Chuck Lane's book as well. Freedom's Detective, really good stuff. Uh, and I implore you to go get that story of Hiram C. Whitley. To do a story about the KKK, we had to do a lot of research and, and find out about how we beat these people back one time. We did it again in the 1920s, the 1960s, and the 1990s, and we can do it again. Lays out some of the blueprints of how we did it in the past. People, this movement of white nationalism needs to be confronted. And it was great to also the efforts of, of men like Ulysses S. Grant, a, full, a flawed president, but also someone whose record on civil rights is causing him to shoot up the ranks. You can go listen to our Ulysses S. Grant podcast back from 2020, last year, uh, episode three. Um, very interesting story. We had some awesome guests on that one uh, and, and really an episode that we're proud of uh, that also goes into more depth about this 
this war against the KKK. That'll do it for today's show, and we've only got one show left in Season 6. I can't believe it. Thanks so much to our friends at Evergreen Podcast. You can go to evergreenpodcast.com. So many great history shows on there, including our own. You can hear all our past episodes. Again, evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks again for all their help this season. Our last episode will be an oral history of something called Ten Cent Beer Night. 1974 in Cleveland, Ohio, we gained access to incredible interviews from people who were there. The players, the umpires, the announcers, the journalists, the photographers, even the people in the front office who were part of this harebrained promotional scheme to get people into the ballpark to see the struggling Cleveland Indians and how that night in the 1970s devolved into chaos and a riot. It's a story we've really been looking to tell for years. We finally got so much great material and we'll speak with a filmmaker who gave us that material and you'll hear it really a very little narration you'll hear that story of how that developed uh, one of the craziest sports stories of all time not just in ohio history it'll be our season finale tell your friends to listen to our story at 10 cent beer night an oral history which will be out in two weeks the baseball playoffs are firing up my st louis cardinals look like they're going to make the wild card after a great finish uh, the indians and the reds are going to get shut out this year but looking forward to another great major league baseball postseason and you'll hear one of the craziest stories in baseball history the story of dime a beer night that's two weeks from today thank you so much to our guests eric archilla Stephen walters from 1865 one of the best podcasts millions of listeners and you need to join them they're looking to maybe even do a season three but go back and start season one i mean it's just a fascinating show incredibly unique incredibly well acted and, and something uh, wondery who makes so many great podcasts uh one of their best and again 1865 there's a link in the show notes go check them out thanks to eric and steve for joining us and, and keep up the good work fellas uh just really looking forward to seeing what you guys do with this story next we'll see you in two weeks when we talk about mayhem at cleveland municipal stadium Thanks a lot for listening to Ohio versus the World. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast.